chapter 18. Begins on page 401, just for, just for half of one verse. Page 401, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Judges 18. It's by way of reminding us all of what happens in Judges 17. There's a man named Micah who sort of brings religion home to himself, sets up somewhat of a temple, a shrine in his home. And so we see false religion in a, in a family in Israel, and we'll see false religion flower to this entire tribe, the tribe of the Danites. So what uh, the narrator in Judges is doing is showing us how false religion is rampant within God's people. Judges 18. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtaal to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go, explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived in a long way. Uh, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no re- relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtaal, their brothers asked them, How did you find things? They asked, Come on, let's attack them. We have seen that the land is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men from the clan of the Danites armed for battle set out from Zorah and Eshtaol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahanadan to this day. From there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. 
When these men went to Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as, as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah called together, were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some hot-tempered men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a, ba- a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershon, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's fairly clear that these few chapters and judges in between the Samson story and sort of moving towards the end of the book, there is this reporting, this assessment of false religion throughout all of God's people, which is a rebuke, it's a challenge, it's a call to return to the Lord God. But it is really, it's surprising, certainly for us, as we look back into the history of God's people, that false religion could be this rampant. Of course, they they are a religious people, aren't they? There is a lot of concern with religion, with the things of the gods, we might say. But it is, it's false, it's not true. You think, you see something like this in other areas and aspects of life. Somebody picks up a new hobby, and normally when you pick up a new hobby, you don't know much about it, you aren't very good at it. Say someone wants to get into camping. Well, you can go and, and spend thousands of dollars buying all the equipment, you can go online researching the kinds of things that you do while camping and and learning about how do you cook food, how do you set up camp, what are the things you need to be concerned about. You can learn the lingo, the kind of language that uh, campers use, reading blogs or going onto message boards on the internet and learning the way that they talk, the kinds of things that they're concerned about. You can do all of those things, but the, the substance of the matter is actually going out and doing the thing, camping. And if you're someone like me, that's going to be the the biggest step, the hardest step to actually take. Even if you want to, 
There's going to be challenges. It's fun to get equipment and think about the adventures you might have, but then uh, it gets difficult when it actually comes time to learn it and to go about doing it. False religion is something that we may say, well, uh, that may have been a problem in Israel in that time. That may be a problem for other people in other parts of the world, uh, but it's not really a problem for me, not really a problem for us. Keep in mind that most of the Israelites are understanding that Yahweh is the God they are to call upon. Remember Micah's mom, where she blesses Yahweh, and she's glad when Micah returns the money that he had stolen from her. She responds by saying, may, may Yahweh bless you, and then she calls Micah to build an idol to God, the very God who has said, don't ever make an idol in the form of anything to represent me. False religion is something that we need to be aware of as well. We may fill our lives with religiosity. We may fill our lives with the checklists of things. We may put all of the dressing around our lives that make us look religious or appear religious, but it is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart, biblical Christianity. I was thinking about this, and I kept thinking about this one verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, this is the, the aim of all of my instruction. Everything that I do, here's what I'm going for, the purpose. Here is why I'm doing what I'm doing. He says, the goal of our instruction, the goal of our charge, is love that issues, uh, love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Everything that Paul does, he says, what I'm going for is that God's people would be, have lives that are filled with love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's true religion. So we're going to go through this chapter in Judges and see some ways in which we can spot false religion in our lives and then also we will constantly be coming back to the source of of true religion. The source of true religion is Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. And I know I've been talking about that, bringing that up a lot in recent sermons in Judges, but that's what is sort of coming forth from the story of the Judges, is that this is a people who not only have rejected God as their king, but they, aren't, they don't have regard for his word, and they are going about the forgiveness of sins in the wrong way. So we'll look at some diagnostics for false religion, and we'll look at the source of true religion, our prophet, priest, and king. First is the false religion of materialism. Materialism. This chapter shows an Israel through the tribe of Dan that has rejected the portion God has given to them and would rather follow their eyes or follow their senses to determine what they want rather than trusting God with faith. The Danites, this tribe, right from the beginning of chapter 18, we see that they have rejected the inheritance that God has given to them. So all the way back in Joshua chapter 19, in the latter part of the book of Joshua, God apportions land to the various tribes within the promised land. Here's what, here's what Judah gets, here's what Benjamin gets, and on and on it goes. We read in regards to the Danites that God gave them many parts of the promised land. Places like Zorah and Eshtaol, which we read about in Judges 18. Places like Irshemesh and Shaalabim and Aijalon and 
other places and other cities too. This was their inheritance. But when you come to Judges chapter 18, the Danites are sending out spies, spending, sending out people to go and find their inheritance. It's the same word that's being used. And that's a, a, a fairly strange thing, isn't it? You don't go out looking for an inheritance. An inheritance is something given to you. God had given them aspects of the promised land, portions of the promised land. He said, this is your inheritance. This is what I am giving to you. You don't go from door to door knocking on the doors, the houses of people you don't know, and they answer the door, and you say, hi, I'm here looking for my inheritance. Perhaps you've, uh, perhaps you've left me something. You don't go out and take it. It's something that is given to you. What would have been the faith-filled thing for the Danites to do? God had given them this large portion of the promised land. They had trouble taking it. We read that even all the way back in Joshua. The Danites had trouble taking control of the land that God had given them. But the faith-filled thing to do would have been for them to repent, to seek God's face, to seek his blessing, to trust in him, and to continue working to take what he had given them, to grasp hold of it, to drive the Canaanites out of the land that God had given to them. This is what it means to live in faith. God did not promise the Israelites that I'm going to give you your inheritance, and the Canaanites are just going to walk away. He said, this is what I give to you, and you need to live by faith, you need to live with diligence, and pursue it, and take hold of it, and lay hold of it. That is how God told them to live in the promised land. But it became difficult. It was difficult for them, and so they basically gave up, and they said, well, let's go find a different inheritance. There's a parallel to the Christian life, isn't there? God has said, here's what I give to you. I give to you eternal life in Christ, eternal blessedness, unceasing joy that you will have for all eternity. But when God grants faith in Christ, it's not like we are just whisked up to heaven. You don't repent and believe and trust in Christ and then all of a sudden you immediately come into your inheritance. God leaves us here, he leaves us in this life, and most of us, indeed all of us, will go through things that test our faith, that try our faith, that will make us say, in some sense, that maybe it would be better if I didn't have God as this God. Maybe it would be better if I didn't continue to trust in him. That's going to be a temptation, but what does God say? Here's the inheritance I have given to you. Live by faith, trust in me. Continue repenting of your sins. Renew yourselves in the covenant that I have given to you, the covenant of grace, and lay hold of eternal life. This is what Paul is speaking about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I run with all of my might to lay hold of what God has given me, always trusting in his grace, always trusting in the salvation that comes to me freely in Christ. But I know that it's not easy. And I know that there will be times in my life when temptation comes to lay it all to the side. You know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. But the Christian life is persevering in faith by God's grace. But The Danites go about it a different way. They're looking for now a different inheritance. They find this land that has plenty of resources. Did you notice the parallel 
between Judges and all the way back when spies were sent into the promised land for the first time to go and seek out the land and they come back and they tell God's people the land is great, it has plenty of resources but there are, there are enemies there and it's going to be hard to drive them out. The parallel here is uh, God's people, the, the Danites, are doing the same thing, spent sending out spies to spy out the land. They find something with a lot of resources and they say, this is better, it's going to be easy. But the problem is, this is not the land that God has given to them. They're following their eyes instead of trusting in what God has given them. I think we see the kind of parallels that this has to our lives today, whether the church in America or the church worldwide. God says, here's your inheritance, eternal life, eternal blessedness in Christ, and here's what I guarantee you in me and through me. But too often, God's people live seeking other things, a successful career, lots of money, fulfilling romances, Some of these things in and of themselves, or some of these things by themselves, may be fine in their proper place. But it's not what God has guaranteed to us and for us in this life. He hasn't guaranteed all of his people a successful career. If you go to all Christians throughout the world, you're not going to find that every single one of them is extremely successful at their job. Many people really struggle. Many people really struggle in other areas of their lives. He hasn't, he hasn't promised to us wonderfully fulfilling marriages at each and every moment, in each and every point. There are a lot of people who really struggle. To a man, to a woman, this is not what God has guaranteed us. But he has guaranteed us an inheritance of eternal life in Christ. And so the call is to cherish what God has given to us. To seek first the kingdom of God. First Peter chapter 1 God has given to us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It's not something that you'll find here on the earth. We are also told that in addition to our heavenly inheritance, there's a portion that we have in this life. But it's not earthly riches. It is wisdom and love and virtue. God has told us in Proverbs chapter 16 that it's better to get wisdom than to get gold. And in James chapter 1, God says, pray for wisdom and ask for wisdom and God will grant it to the one who asks in faith. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says uh, to the Thessalonians, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Paul's prayer for this church is that God would fill your life with good works. That God would fill your life with virtue, with the fruit of the Spirit, with a love for each other, with a love for your neighbor. That as we live by faith, as we walk by the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, this is what God is going to fill your life with. He's going to fill your life with virtues and graces and love. So love and cherish and treasure the heavenly inheritance of of eternal life and know and understand what God has promised to you in this life. What is your portion here? A life filled with good works, as he sanctifies you and grows you in grace. That's the false religion of materialism. We also have, I should say, the cure, not only that, but the cure for the false religion of materialism is to have Jesus as our prophet. He's 
To have Jesus as your prophet is to say, he has given us a word that we are to trust. And if you go to God's word, what do you find? It's like in Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is worth more than all of the riches in this world. It's like the treasure hidden in a field. A man finds a treasure hidden in a field. He goes and he covers it up and he goes and sells all that he has so that he may buy that field. Genuine faith, the kind of genuine faith that we find in 1 Timothy, right? Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues forth from genuine faith. Well, it's believing God's word when God's word says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So the cure for the false religion of materialism is to have Jesus as our prophet, to believe the word of God, to trust it, and to trust where it confronts our desire to overvalue the things of this world. There's also, secondly, a false religion of sacramentalism. Sacramentalism. Just like in the last chapter in, Mike, in uh, Judges 17, the story of Micah, what we see here in chapter 18 with the Israelites is a superstition. They're a superstitious people, a religious and a superstitious people that know nothing of the God of grace and what it means to worship him according to his commands. You have this pathetic scene, don't you? where the Danites go to the house of Micah and they say, here is a man who has an entire temple in his home. Kind of made me think of about 15 or 20 years ago when it it sort of became the thing to put a big movie theater in your basement. You'd say, well, that's that's one of those houses that has kind of the home of theater in your basement. And you'd see it about 20 people in it, have this really big screen. This is a man who has brought religion to his house. He he doesn't even have to leave. He's got an ephod. He's got other gods that he has made. He's got this shrine. He He has a Levite priest that he has bribed to come to his home. This guy, everyone's saying, he's got it all. So you have this pathetic scene of the Danites saying, this is that house. There's a temple there. This guy has his own religious system all set up. So what do they do? They go in and they take it. They want it for themselves. They go in and they take it take it. And then you have Micah chase them down and this scene unfolds. What are you doing? You've taken all of the things that I have had in my house. In fact, he says, you have taken the gods that I have made. (laughs) So there you have two things revealed. Number one, Micah says, I have made these gods, which how can a human being create something that is superior in nature to himself? You can't. You have taken these, these are the gods that I have made, and you have taken them. In other words, these are gods that are so pathetic, they can't even defend themselves from nighttime burglary. And they go into the house, and they just take them, and they leave with them. But then perhaps most pathetic of all is the fact that the Danites have taken them, right? Even though these gods are pathetic, they were created by Micah, made by him, they can't defend themselves, the Danites say, well, that's what we want. That's the kind of thing. That we want. The pinnacle of folly. And you see this superstition, a paganism, really it's the spread of a a Canaanite mindset in Israel at this time. This is all driven by a notion that human beings can appease God, get on his good side through observing rituals, through religious observance. This is a, a purely earthly mindset. Another problem with God's people at this time is that they're reading providence through the lens of their circumstances. 
God is happy with me because things are going well in my life. Things, good things are happening to me. We're getting all of these possessions, which means God must be pleased with me. If you read the scriptures, you will get an utterly different way of thinking. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For you have been called to suffer for him. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything will separate you from the love of Christ. Christ holds us in his love through all of life's circumstances. But in the time of the judges, Israel was taken up with this superstition, with something of a sacramentalism. There's a sacramentalism in all aspects, all areas of the church, all traditions, every corner of Christendom is tempted to this. Many people believe that baptism has some kind of magic, whether you believe in infant baptism or adult baptism, some kind of magic. All you need to do is sort of have the water on you and you're good. It doesn't have anything to do with your heart. There are some people who think that if you make your way down the aisle for an altar call during the the fifth repeat of a chorus, then, then you're good. Other aspects of Christendom say, well, if you go and you observe mass and go to confession once a week or once a month, then you will be okay. See, that's ritualism, that's superstition, that's traditionalism. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the, is the living faith of the dead. What's the beauty of baptism? The beauty of baptism is that as we see the water that gently flows upon the head of the one being baptized, we see a proclamation of the gospel and a call to trust in Christ and a sign of his covenant of grace that he forgives, that he lavishes us with mercy, that it calls us to trust in him and to give ourselves. Thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my pure heart. What's the cure for this false religion of sacramentalism, this false religion of superstition? The cure is Jesus as our great high priest. Remember Micah in chapter 17. He's trying to improve the religious system of his home. He has his son as a priest. He said, and then he meets this Levitical priest and he says, well, if I have this Levitical priest and I can bribe him to come to my house, then I, I don't really need to worry about my son being priest. I'll have this, this actual priest. Then God will be good to me. The tribe of the Danites, they say, well, if we just steal Micah's whole religious system, then we'll, we'll be fine. We'll be able to appease God. We'll have this whole system that cleanses us and God will be pleased with us. Paul says in 1 Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues forth from what? A good conscience. What does it mean to have a good conscience as a Christian? It's an understanding that the Son of God, whose blood is infinitely valuable, far more valuable than we could ever imagine or think, his blood was shed for us. The God-man, the one who is eternally glorious, 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, so that any time we are accosted with thoughts that our sin is too great, that God could never forgive us, we say we have the blood of Christ, which speaks for us, which speaks a better word than anything else in all creation, in all of God's universe. We have the blood of Christ that pleads for us. Charles Spurgeon says, No human mind can adequately estimate the infinite value of the divine sacrifice, for great as is the sin of God's people, the atonement which takes it away is immeasurably greater. Therefore, the believer, even when sin rolls like a black flood and the remembrance of the past is bitter, can yet stand before the blazing throne of the great and holy God and cry, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that hath risen Again, Christ died for us. So in our conscience, we know and we understand that our sins have been paid for with blood that purchases for us eternal life. So we don't need to move up in the life of religiosity before God. We don't need to find a better high priest. We don't need to improve our system. We need to continue looking to Jesus, the great high priest. Lastly, there's a false religion of subjectivism. Subjectivism. Judges 18 begins by saying what? In those days, Israel had no king, which means that no one is ruling. But yet there is a king in Israel, isn't there? It's God. God has set himself up as king and ruler. It's merely that everyone throughout Israel, or seemingly everyone throughout Israel in the time of the judges, has rejected the reign and the rule of God. They say, I want to go my own way. I want to create my own kingdom. Micah, I'm going to set up my own little outpost here. The tribe of Dan, we're going to steal what Micah has created, bring it to our new city in Laish, and all the while they have this religious system that is opposed to the one in Bethel, or in Shiloh, because at that point, that's where worship was taking place. They set up their own temple. They set up their own kingdom. When everyone serves themselves, no one is serving God. When we do what we think is right, when we make ourselves the little rulers in our own kingdoms, God is not honored. God is not served. We see subjectivism all throughout the world and the church. Subjectivism in areas of worship. The church is tempted to believe that when we come together on Sunday, it's to appease our own tastes and our own preferences. What I want is what's really important. There's subjectivism in lifestyle choices. Surely God doesn't condemn certain lifestyles. Certainly God does not care what people do in their bedrooms. There's subjectivism in worldliness, not understanding our call to be set apart from the world, to live in a way where we appear and live differently where our neighbors see us and know and understand that there is something different about us? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them. And so Paul says, go out from their midst, that is from the world, be separate from them, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. God says, set yourselves apart. 
The cure for our false religion of subjectivism is a king who rules in heaven, Jesus Christ. But it's a king who changes our hearts so that we would freely and willingly and lovingly give ourselves to our heavenly king. That's the wonder of the gospel, of grace. That's the wonder of what happens in Christianity, that God changes your hearts so that you freely say, let my kingdom fall, let thy kingdom come. I don't want to live to serve myself. I make it my aim to please you. My greatest desire in life is that in all things, Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that is my great joy. See, Christ doesn't have to rule as a tyrant because those who have been changed freely give all to their king. And so we see the source of true religion. There's all kinds of false religion in the world, in the church. The church is tempted to fall into various aspects of true religion. This is not an exhaustive list. You think of the end of the book of 1 John, the apostle says, the last thing he says in that in that letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The sin that remains within our heart continues to tempt us to put things above Christ, above our prophet and priest and king, to seep into some aspect of false religion. John says, keep yourselves from idols. In order to do that, where do you go? You go to the source of true religion, our prophet and our priest and our king, and you need to understand how those offices operate in our lives. For Christ to be our prophet means to say we take him at his word. And when he says what you have in eternal life, what you have in the kingdom of God is worth more than the world. Therefore live like it. We say we're going to make it our aim to live that way. When we have Christ as our priest, then it says that is to give you a good conscience to know that all of your sins are forgiven. And you don't need to think about your standing before God in terms of religiosity, but rather in the, in the heart that looks to Christ and trusts in him and he will empower you and transform you to live in a way that pleases you, then we understand that to be the case. And when we understand that Christ is our king, we gladly come under his rule. It is our joy to say we are not lone rangers. We do not have our own kingdom. We are not out here trying to figure it out for ourselves. We are here on this earth to glorify Christ and to live for him and to freely give ourselves in service to our king. To set ourselves in the road against false religion is to go and live within the power of the source of true religion Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, trust in him. Trust that he will do what he promises to do with all of those offices as they operate in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you will bless us as we look to your word and as we continue to seek the blessing that you give in and through it. Be with us as we go. May this day honor you. May we serve you gladly, gladness in our hearts, as we understand that we live under your rule, your rule and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.